I'm Shai Shack. And I'm Rebecca Stuckey. You're listening to FemFM, a feminist radio show centering QT BIPOC Femmes on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax, Nova Scotia. This week's episode, we're talking about the intersections of disability. In our conversation with disabled women and femmes, we explore the complexities of disability and identity. You'll hear about spoon theory, representation in the media, and the ways in which the disability community is inaccessible for many. I have a disability. Two years ago, I was diagnosed with arthritis and hypermobility. This was after years of pain, countless visits to the doctor, and not knowing what my body was doing. This was a big victory for me, finally being able to understand what was happening, being able to set boundaries for myself, and respect what I can and cannot do. My diagnosis journey doesn't end there. I'm still undergoing tests and waiting for answers on a number of different symptoms that I have that my current diagnosis does not explain. I think it's important for folks to realize that getting an official diagnosis can take years. For some people, it can take up to six years to have your pain and symptoms validated. But that doesn't mean that right now you're not in pain. It doesn't mean that right now you're not disabled. This may be the first time that a lot of folks close to me are hearing my story around this. This is not something that I share often because of the fact that I'm not what most people think of when they think of disability. What I think I want people to know is that the words and the things they say matter and can be very hurtful. When you say that I'm a party pooper because I need to go home early, that's really hard for me. I need my sleep, usually eight to nine hours of sleep every night to make sure that I can function the next day. A common theory used to talk about and explain chronic illness and disability is spoon theory. It was created by Christine Miserandino, who runs the blog ButYouDon'tLookSick.com. Most healthy people start their day with an unlimited possibility and enough energy to do whatever they want. But living with chronic illness means you always have a limited amount of energy or number of spoons that you have to be aware of. Doing things to conserve spoons is so important. It means realizing that we can't do everything we want. Understanding that for someone living with a chronic illness, every single job is a hundred little jobs in one. As a young person, I struggle every day with not being able to do everything I want. What makes it even harder is people saying, oh, come on, you're young, drink some coffee and you'll be good. Even though I love coffee, if I'm having a flare up or knowing my limits, coffee isn't gonna help me be in less pain the next morning. At the end of the day, I have no spoons left and no amount of nagging or pressure will change that. All it does is make me feel terrible. My name is Masuma Khan, and I am a fourth-year international development studies student here at Dalhousie. I'm also the president of the Muslim Student Association, and I work at the Equity and Accessibility Office here at the DSU. I'm kind of like a social activist, I guess. I feel like that that term's very like buzzwordy nowadays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just a person who feels the need to speak up. I love poetry, so I use spoken word to really address injustices and oppression for folks like me and, and others who face these barriers. Like, how did you get involved with this work? I think it came from like my personal experience, just like being a young person going through my first year university with like a terribly bad slip disc with no doctor like leaving me and you know being forced to deal with that not being able to sit in class not being able to sleep uh it really taking a toll on my life and then finally having a doctor be like okay there's actually something wrong with you let me get some tests in and then the doctor sees what i was going through and was like 
holy crap how did no one else see this before so i think um for me i really got into it when i realized that i came to terms with the fact that i am a young person with a disability even though a lot of people think that that's taboo but i think it's time we start talking about it i think it's time that we address like the fact that most people do not understand why maybe young people are walking around with canes this is something that i i personally like uh, deal with quite a bit just like you know recovering from surgery i'm in my fourth week of recovery and uh having to go around with uh how i like to describe it as my pimp cane Um, (laughs) and having these like terrible terrible just mean stares and people just not understanding you know why it is that i'm using a cane i mean it definitely doesn't feel positive when someone's glaring at you like in disbelief while you're walking down the street just like why the hell are you using that it's like you know young folks do have disabilities too and it's not uncommon Mm. disability comes in so many different forms there's so many different intersections and i just thought that being a muslim woman a muslim woman of color uh who's also a settler in this land i think it's important that i brought this part of me to the general public Mm. and just start using it as an avenue to speak for those who don't really get the chance to looking at the like disability community and how like in that community only like a small portion of like disabilities are actually recognized there Mm -hmm. and how like it's like a struggle especially for folks with like other identities Mm -hmm. struggling within that community Mm -hmm. it's hard i feel when you have an invisible disability it seems like you're lost in that community and and people that are in that community with you are in disbelief of your struggle which is not what we're supposed to be doing when when we're literally in a community together we should be supporting one another not not being like well mine's more severe than yours so you don't have the right to talk like I think that that's just so hurtful because when when you know that you have so many barriers why are you basically creating more barriers for people in your community and especially when you're dealing with the issues of race and stuff like that it's very hard to come and speak to uh, folks in this community who are like white cis people who have like severe disabilities and and because they still have this privilege Mm -hmm. um it's hard to even step up to the plate and be like hey like you know what you can't say that yeah my disability has intersections maybe yours doesn't but mine definitely does so i mean it's a hard conversation because like it's people like this that don't understand their privilege even with their barrier totally feel that and something I've like often struggled with is particularly in like the last few years is like trying to like access that community and like find people that like have the same struggles as me but then having to neglect like other parts of my identity to be able to do that to be like to like not be like openly queer in those spaces um, or to like to hide like indigeneity and things like that in order to be able to access those things and like not being able to be my true self and how like actually like so hard that is. Mm-hmm. Being like a young person with a disability, like having to use a cane mm-hmm. and like the struggles surrounding that. What are your supports in navigating that? My supports, my supports are my family. Um, my supports are my friends. My supports are other racialized folks who go through this struggle being in the disability community. And it's another thing, like from my own community within the Muslim community, it's a very taboo subject to talk about disability to the point where a lot of our mosques aren't even accessible and people don't even question that. Mm-hmm. The only one that I know that's fully accessible is the Center for Islamic Development. Mm-hmm. And kudos to them for making that happen. It's it's very taboo. And in even, you know, sometimes I feel my mom gets sort of shocked when I say, you know, I have a disability because she's afraid of what other people may perceive me to be 
may perceive her child to be less than and that's very hurtful for a mother because she wants me to be everything she was and has and and more so it's definitely a struggle so to find these supports is hard but i i found them and uh, they're ones that i that i will not let go of when people see me without my cane it's like it doesn't mean that I'm better. It doesn't mean that my disability is like gone. It, yeah. it just means that I'm dealing with it in a different way today. It may be different tomorrow. It may be the same. Who knows? But I hate that question. Are you better now? It's like, first of all, it's none of your business. <laughs> if you really wanted to know how I was doing, you could just ask me, how are you? Mm-hmm. You know, um, but to insinuate that because I'm not using a support that my struggle is just gone is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. Or like people, I'm like, oh, I'm like having a really bad day today. I'm having a flare up. And like people like asking questions, like associating it with like the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like it's like I get the flu. It's a real thing. But like my like flare ups are not comparable to the flu. Like I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and feel better like if i'm having a flare-up it can probably take like a week two weeks sometimes like months to like actually feel back to like myself and being like oh like when are you when are you gonna be better um like that question is like so infuriating to me um because i'm like one sometimes i don't know Mm -hmm. uh and two like i'm actually never gonna be better yeah but also like what's that con what what does better mean to you you know what i mean it's like sometimes i have negative days and positive days but it doesn't mean that i'm not good the way that i am it doesn't mean that i'm not at my best like this whole idea that disability cannot be associated with something that's positive like we are good people we are okay (laughs) we are positive we have good days we have bad days we're just like everyone else (laughs) so i mean that's the whole thing is like yeah today may be like a really bad day and that's another thing is just like accessing space when you're going through like these flare-ups like for me it's i have a lot of nerve damage i've had multiple spinal surgeries so it's like people not understanding what you need to access a space and when we say that you know we have a policy and and trying to make everything so accessible another buzzword when you don't actually apply that to your work and your work frame and someone with a disability is actively saying like this space is not accessible to me what are you actually doing like literally othering me in so many different ways and then when i get frustrated you're just like oh she's going through a lot of things right now I want to be part of this conversation and it sucks that that happens in our work and it's a really hard thing that I've been dealing with lately because some days like I don't feel like I can come into work and I need to work from home or or find other ways to to input myself no I totally feel that and I also feel like the frustration around like accessibility like being that like buzzword and like everyone says it and it's put on like all of these events but like if you're actually not doing that work if you're actually not doing that work ahead of time to make the space accessible one you're not doing a good job Mm -hmm. um and two if you're forcing people to come forward and be like this is what I need for the space to be accessible you're making them disclose to you what they're going through and like that's also really messed up Mm -hmm. um and most, most folks won't come if that's what they have to do. Yeah. Like, I don't want to go up to a stranger and be like, this is what I'm going through right now. And can you please do this to me? Like, I'm not comfortable doing that with, no. like, a stranger, someone I don't know. Um, so, like, saying, like, oh, it's an accessible space. Like, if you're actually not doing that work, like, yeah. don't even say it. <laughs> don't say it. <laughs> You know, just make sure you have the supports in place. Stay positive. You know, you're going to have your bad days. You're going to have your good days. If you're curious about disabilities, talk to someone from that community. Folks within this community, please don't other us if our disabilities (laughs) are invisible and are not the same as yours. 
Kaylee Trace is a queer, disabled writer and sex educator. She's the author of the brilliant book Hot, Wet, and Shaking, How I Learned to Talk About Sex, and the blog The Fucking Facts. She used to work at Venus Edmi in Halifax, where she led workshops exploring disability, desirability, resistance, sex toys, and more. Now she's living in Toronto, where she continues to do incredible work. I write about sex and disability as a political point. Yeah. Like there's uh, such an absence of disabled voices, and there's not an absence. That's not true. There are incredible disabled activists and writers doing incredible work, but in the general milieu of society, there's a real um, invisibility around the sexuality of disabled people that I like to use my own experience to work against, and writing what you know felt safe for me, and, and I really know the experience of trying to figure out how to have sex and be disabled when you don't really get any kind of specified information about your body, if your body is different than others. So that's why I write about sex and disability. I lived in Halifax for so long that I rarely felt like I was meeting new people. Like, I was like, oh yeah, people read this book, but they're also all my friends, and they know me. <laughs> so now I live in this other city where I'm meeting people who have maybe read my work but don't know me. And it's very disorienting. Like, in some ways, it feels great because a thing about being visibly disabled is that when you meet new people, you can feel them wanting to know why you're different. Mm -hmm. But there's no politically appropriate way of asking people, like, hey, why do you look the way you look? And people will ask anyway. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Um, But often people won't ask, and and I'll just, I will have to try to figure out a way to either make them feel more comfortable with me so they don't, feel as cognizant of my difference or figure out a way of like slipping in an explanation to my body so that they can relax and I can relax. And so it's a little bit nice to have this like text that people might be able to reference and I don't have to explain myself as much. Mm. But then in some other ways it's really vulnerable and I and I wrote really personally about myself kind of with this naive assumption that just my friends would read it. And now meeting people who have only that context in which to know me is, is like it can be kind of nerve-wracking. I embody a lot of privilege with regards to disability. I mean, in many ways I embody privilege, but with regards to disability, I can communicate verbally and I can, I mean, I walk differently and I use a cane, but I do, I am able to do many things. It just looks a little different. And so in terms of like when I'm actually like in a sexual situation, my ability to communicate and my ability to move in the ways that I can mean that I think that I think in many ways I navigate consent in ways to folks who maybe are non-disabled. But that being said, I do think there's this like context that disabled bodies who've been medicalized have to their body that's really different than people who haven't spent their life in a medical system. So I'm like really used to people just manhandling my body and yeah. like touching my body without ever asking. And that's very normalized for me. I almost don't even notice anymore when a healthcare practitioner grabs me and physically manipulates me. It's just such a part of my existence. And I only recently have begun to think really critically about that and about what it taught me about my autonomy. And I'm still really learning and kind of trying to unpack those weird lessons that you get if you're a medicalized body. Because autonomy and like a right to choose how your body will move is just not even remotely considered in the healthcare world in my experience. Yeah, and it's and I only recently have begun to really try to within my role as a patient try to disrupt that and try to say like, oh no, I don't want to do that. But it's really hard. There's such a power dynamic in that in the hospital room and yeah. um, it's a real it's a really complex and difficult thing that I'm still learning about. 
the product of an egg carried in the body of a woman who is a survivor. And while the argument that personhood begins before conception exists within the ova itself is obviously one fucked up falsified construct, I do like to imagine sometimes the egg carried inside my mother's body that even existed in my grandmother's body and that would eventually become one small part of my production, a point of connection that I appreciate. In many ways, I have moved far from the life my grandmother and mother led, and I hold in contempt the binaristic conceptions of gender that box them into their respective positions. But in other ways, I carry on what was for them women's work and I adapted to fit my queer life, my queer body. In my existence, this labor is femme labor. This brilliance is femme brilliance. In the words of Chloe Brushwood Rose and Anna Camillary, femme is transcendent and mutable and a gender experience on its own terms. These days, I start my morning by standing naked in front of the mirror and sipping my coffee as I run the curling iron through my hair. How many times did I watch my mother do this as a kid? Countless mornings. I would stumble half asleep into the shower, past my mother standing naked in front of the mirror, conducting her hour-long grooming procedures, massaging creams into her skin, curling her hair, applying foundation. I stand naked in front of the mirror now every morning, and I behold my body, a body that has become a near-exact replica of my mother's. My mother would often look at her own body and both revel in and worry about it at the same time, worry that her round belly and round butt took up too much space. Now my belly and butt are beginning their inevitable, creeping, filling out, slow but sure, and I rub them with encouragement. I thank them for carrying and containing all of me. I took from my mother the revelry and I discarded the pressure to shrink, shrink, always shrink, a queer femme adaptation. In a piece for Autostraddle, American author and disability activist Carrie Wade wrote, it is counterintuitive to give a disabled body what it wants. A resonant chord. I've been disabled since 1995 and I know well the pressure to never let your body lie still. All the messaging around disability from every healthcare provider to media representation reminds you that your body is wrong and it ought to be righted. I rarely give my body what it wants. Disability contorts me on many levels. My feet contort under the pressure to carry the weight of me. My knees buckle. And all of me contorts under the pressure to keep up in a world that truly is not built for me or people like me. Many disabled folks know well the internal struggle to do and be everything, to be normal in every way except. I work hard and often to prove that I'm good enough. At this point, I'm no longer sure the audience who will bear witness to this point that I'm proving, but it's hard to redirect old, worn patterns. My skill, the particular iteration of my internalized ableism, I find gaps and I fill them. Is there something that you're not getting? Is there something that you need doing? Is there a way I can be the most helpful? I'll slip myself into your errands. This often looks like femme labor, and two, it's a way I try and make up for those things that my body can't do. My body feels so often beyond my control. I cannot predict when it will tumble or fall or when it will forcibly eject fluids from any of the potential orifices. And I love it. I am in love with this unpredictable body. This adoration has been hard won. It took years of undoing to decide that I'm invaluable, desirable, more than good enough. 
and I attribute so much of all of my feel-good feelings to finding femness. Femme fits and provides a safe haven of security in a body that always feels a little beyond my control. I can't choose how often I'll go to the bathroom, but I can choose my lipstick. And so my feminist and disability intertwine and inform one another. Kate is a queer, femme, disabled, and traumatized spinster cat mom. She has been caring, supporting, and holding space for folks with intellectual disabilities for nearly five years. This has left her fiercely passionate and angry about accessibility and recognizing, honoring, and holding femme magic and labor close. Growing up, I was in a school really well known for supporting folks with intellectual disabilities, and so I've always kind of been around disability. When I was in university, I took a trip to Ghana, which is a complicated thing since I'm a white lady. And while I was there, I met a couple of folks in junior high school that had uh, different kinds of disability. And that was probably the first time I experienced disability with like an intersectional lens, I guess, without even knowing it through a lens of kinship and relationship and not one based on capitalism and the idea of able bodies being valued. And that is how I ended up in Cape Breton living in intentional community with a whole bunch of awesome and wonderful folks there. I got burnt out, which is a complicated thing when it comes to care work. And now I'm in the city doing agency work. There's like a really big binary between residents and staff, unlike when I was living intentional community where the people I lived with, I love, um, they're my friends, they're still my friends. I think it's sometimes really hard for or uncomfortable for people to say that care work is hard because caring for people is sometimes like an innate thing, especially for femme folks. But also when you care for people in a super ableist world, especially for people like folks with intellectual disabilities whose way of navigating the world or the way they see the world, um, the way they contribute to the world is often like undervalued and not appreciated. So yeah, I think that to care under capitalism and colonization um, is really hard, especially now that I'm doing agency work. So it's all about your shift and it's kind of about like keeping the house going and it's not so much about like being with people or appreciating their gifts or like bringing their gifts out. It's more about like check marks and uh, filling in log notes and those kind of things. So um, since I did get really burnt out before, I'm kind of hyper aware of it now. And since I'm not living with the folks I support, um, I'm like very defensive and fierce about me time. I'm an introvert. And so like when I'm home, I'm home. But it's really hard because even if I do try to make boundaries, like caring is still caring. And I take stuff home with me. I think that's what people do when they do care work. And I think that's kind of just the person I am.
the way we support and care for people is like ever changing because folks are growing older or like there's new issues coming up or new ideas of supporting people so it's just kind of like an ever-evolving thing just the way like I take my friends and the way I care for them home with me sort of thing yeah working with folks with intellectual disabilities like I know that's like a big thing for you so I guess there's two things that come to mind one of them is that the more I do care work the <laughs> angrier I get about femmes doing femme labor and I would say it's really noticeable in the agency work I do. The men that support the same folks that I do, they're kind of like the fun guys and they joke around. They're more into like being present with people and being with, and that is important. I think it's so easy to not do that when a house takes a lot of work. There's always something to do, appointments, meds, whatever. But the fact is, is that when like the guys are having fun with folks like usually the femmes are like holding down the fort doing all sorts of feminized labor and that's really hard sometimes like sometimes you just want to be with people and build relationships and if you're holding down the house then you're not getting to do those things in like the land of disability or the world of disability which is obviously like very white very cis yep intellectual disability is like the piece of the disability pie I guess that often gets overlook because folks' voices aren't being heard for a whole bunch of different reasons. There's lots of people that don't think folks with intellectual disabilities can advocate for themselves. There's lots of folks that don't see or understand how folks with intellectual disabilities advocate for themselves. What I mean by that is the way folks with intellectual disabilities like often communicate is not the way the able-bodied world understands communication or can even see that that is a important, valuable way of listening or seeing others. Folks with intellectual disabilities have so many gifts and things to bring the world without like being seen as inspiration porn or less than or childlike. I have a really good friend back in Cape Breton and he does not use the kind of words I use to communicate, but he's like one of my biggest teachers. I consider him an elder. I love him dearly and think about him every day. Folks with intellectual disabilities, like their labor's undervalued, their art is undervalued, you know, existing in a world that is about being able-bodied and all of the things able-bodied folks can contribute makes folks with intellectual disabilities seen as like not necessary like there's lots of stuff in the news right now especially in the states that is like pretty scary and like people are talking about eugenics and that's like a really terrifying thing um, when you overlook all of the beautiful and weird things that people with intellectual disabilities can teach us. I really feel like, with my politics at least, that it's very important um, now that I've had all of this experience with folks with intellectual disabilities, some that I call my friends and some that aren't my friends, and that's fine too, um, where I really feel with my politics that if I'm not centering folks with disabilities, especially with intellectual disabilities, then my work is kind of useless. If the folks that I love dearly or the folks that I know can't understand the things I'm talking about or the ways in which other people are advocating for them, then I'm kind of like, eh. You know, I've supported a couple guys and maybe they've crossed boundaries with me and it's really hard to talk about like my body being my body. And you're supporting folks whose bodies maybe have never been their body because they're medicalized or because they go to the doctor and like the doctor does things and that's just the way it is. I've had talks with friends. I remember living in Cape Breton 
um, and having a really hard time because um, a terrible radio person was doing stuff around sexualized violence and it was affecting me uh, a lot. And one of my friends was like, why are you sad? What's going on? And I tried to have a conversation, but it's really hard and it's really complicated. Folks with intellectual disabilities are way more likely to experience sexualized violence. I, I think women and femme people with intellectual disabilities, like 90% of them have experienced sexual violence. So yeah, it's just... Ooh. Yeah, and like the percentage with men as well is really high. It's also terribly hard to report if you're someone with an intellectual disability because you have to show that you can be asked questions. And a lot of the time, if you can't speak or if you can't speak in a way the judge sees as being speaking, then you don't get to file anything, which is also complicated because police are complicated and all those things. Yeah, I think those conversations are hard and I, I think I talk a lot about them and I think a lot about them and I try to do them, but I'm not exactly sure if I'm doing it right. Like I have friends or I have people that I support and care for that like they don't care about identity politics or they don't see themselves as disabled and so that is um, another really complicated piece. We care a lot about identity politics right now and we should. How do we all do that? How do we complicate that? Our producers are Ali Graham and Maddie Aslam. Carmela Farakbash does show outreach and assists with script writing. Leanne Shaw is running our official FemFM Twitter, and Julia Simone Rutgers is getting our Tumblr up and running. Thank you again to our incredible guests, Kate, Masuma Khan, and Kaylee Trace. And thanks to you for tuning in. You can check out our past episodes at soundcloud.com slash femfmhalifax. I'm Shia. And I'm Rebecca. We'll see you later. Bye. 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 Bye.